Love the commas. Love the apostrophes. Love the colons and the question marks. Love the words from East Leeds FM. No, no, Lita. No, no, Lita. Happy to be here at Writing on Air. Thanks for asking me. Um, when Peter Spafford confirmed the theme of Home for this year's Writing on Air Festival, I immediately thought of Marvin Gaye singing Wherever I Lay My Hat, That's My Home. Because if you were a teenager in Seacroft in the 1960s, a young teenager, um, that song was part of the soundtrack to your life. Seacroft then was the old Seacroft Centre, uh, the best of places for me was just across a concrete bridge from the shops to the Seacroft Library. And I remember about 10 years later meeting the Plowden Report and being told that working class homes had something like less than less than 5% of them, I think, had uh, books in the home. But that certainly wasn't my experience. We had books in every room except the toilet and the bathroom. And Seacroft Library was where I first read Wilkie Collins, Joyce's Portrait of the Artist, about flying the nets, of course, and other books from beyond my school curriculum, which was mainly like Jane Austen and the Canon, of course. My school was at the other side of Leeds, so I read my way back and forth on buses each day. Thus, when I set off to Rome far and wide in the 1970s, it was, wherever I lay me books, that's my home. And essentially, that's been the pattern of my life, and a happy life too. Today, I want to mention some of the famous writers, not amateurs like me, from or connected to Leeds, who've explored ideas about homes in their books. And as published writers, of course, they've then become part of my homes. At the moment, I have two fixed homes, so the books go back and forth still. The thread connecting them is really the idea that leaving this home area has never meant that Leeds or Yorkshire has left them. Each one of them writes about place, what it meant to them and what it still means for them. They're all writers, books are their living, their home, but the physical place in Yorkshire they have known as home is right inside them, it's on their minds and it's on their pages. The first person I want to mention is Tony Harrison. Uh, he was born in Leeds in Beeston in 1937, so his mother's generation and not mine, but he's been described. He's a, an English poet, a translator, a dramatist, a filmmaker, 
his work expresses the tension between his working class background and the formal sophistication of literary verse. And the Poetry Foundation describes him as Britain's leading poet's playwright. Now, when I was at school in Headingley, I recall a girl from Quarry Hill Flats, another scholarship girl, daring to ask a teacher, have you marked us books, miss? Us? Us, she replied, and she spent many minutes on us, us distinctions in this school, and what we expect of our girls. Now, I was briefly confused because the Irish elders in my community also objected to us, and they also objected to all the dropped H's and T letters in my generation as we became leads. But I soon understood that it was a different angle. They expected more pride in my dealings with the dominant class rather than criticising. And I recalled all this years later when I met Harrison's poem, um, an image of which I've taken and I'll forward these slides to you because there are some links on there as well. Um, them and us, taken from Leeds University uh, site, and it's the Blood Axe version. And what he is doing is writing about an earlier generation, the same theme, the same topic, the same words, but the main issue is still there. It's class. It's about class. And essentially, whether or not you have a right to books if you come from particular classes. And, you know, he's making a clear point. So it's addressed to Professor Richard Hoggart, who, of course, came from Hunslet and founded Cultural Materialism later on, and Leon Cortez. And so there are hints of Keats the whole way through. And with, with Harrison, you have to know more of your classics than I do, because he was a classic. But everything is linked in the poem carefully. It seems very obvious. It seems like it's just a man talking about being a boy. But actually, it's, it's got full of literature and full of classical references. Anyway, he, he, I will send you the link for him reading it online and you'll see. It begins, A, A, I had stutterer Demosthenes, gob full of pebbles out shouting seas. Four words only of me heart aches and mine's broken, you barbarian T.W. He was nicely spoken. Can't have our glorious heritage done to death. I played the drunken porter in Macbeth. Poetry is the speech of kings. You're one of those Shakespeare give the comic bits to. Prose. All poetry, even Cockney Keats, you see, it's been dubbed by us into RP. Receives pronunciation, please believe us. Your speech is in the hands of the receivers. We say us, not us, TW. Well, that shook my trap. I doffed me flat A's, as, as in flat cap. My mouth all stuffed with glottals. Grey lumps to hawk up and spit out. Enunciate! So right, you buggers, them. We'll occupy your lousy leaves-held poetry. I chewed up literature and spat the bones into the lap of dozing Daniel Jones, dropped the initials I'd been harried as, and used my name and own voice. Us, us, us. Ended sentences with by, with, from, and spoke the language that I spoke at home. R-I-P-R-P, R-I-P-T-W, 
I'm Tony Harrison, no longer you. You can tell the receivers where to go and not aspirate it once you know words with matter, watter of full rhymes. Us can be loving as well as funny. My first mention in the Times automatically made Tony Anthony. And they have the whole history of language and RP and Dan Jones was the man who put the dictionary together and defined RP and when you read the definition it says um, this is usually associated with a southern man whose father has gone to a fee-paying good boarding school and so you, you can imagine the kind of accent that they wanted well you know what I mean you know, so uh, 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 Keats and, you know, my heart. And so poor old standing across the uh, across Headingley Moor from my own school uh, had a very similar experience a generation before. Um, and I'd recommend watching him read it in his anorak. It's obviously much better than mine. So the poem explains a schoolboy in Headingley reading Keats and Shakespeare and trying like a great orator, maybe the great orator with pebbles in his mouth shouting at the sea, um, Demosthenes, and being dismissed by his teacher on the basis of Dan Jones's RP pronunciation. And so... Tony Harrison's response is to reject that view and his name being cut to the initials he has on formal paper, TW, because he's finding his own relationship to language. And finding your home starts for many of us with our relationships to books. Making your home with books doesn't depend on geography, doesn't depend on class or any other label people may want to stick on you. Poor women can love their books and find a home in that eternal love. I mean a home. I don't mean a house, a bigger and posher house, in a more expensive area where people only say us. Books are like carrying your home, your essential shelter and happy, safe place for your mind and your feelings. Now, Wordsworth is in the poem, rhyming matter and water, which he was very good at, of course, as a poet in a leaky cottage who became a poet laureate. And Harrison speaks the language he speaks at home and is a highly prolific, highly acclaimed writer and classicist. So, of course, I know ideas about home are not based on books for everybody, but that's my starting point. And I've been asking people what they lay to make a home. Now, some of the answers aren't repeatable, of course, but one said the car. This is a man who says, it's my second home, I lay everything in it, and including my Leeds United stuff, travelling for work. Well, that took me right back to Tony Harrison, of course, because in 1985, his V poem was at the centre of massive media and political debates. It was in the miners' strike. People were very hyped up. It turned up in Parliament. Channel 4 were accused of all sorts of things. Uh, this is a period when Heseltine's talking about the loony left, and it all came into it. And there was only one MP who spoke up, and he was in Scotland, saying, you know, you should read the poem. And Harrison's riposte to, to the idea that it was a bolshy poet trying to push his poetry on people was that MPs were trying to push their lack of intellect on people so it was all 
very, very heated. And at the time, I happened to be in Dewsbury for a few months, so I was very taken with this idea of what he was up to. The main objection, actually, interesting, was people objected to the obscenity and four-letter filth. Um, filth. Uh, so this is a very long poem. It's nearly 4,000 words of finely accomplished quatrains. And so, of course, I can't do all the poem, but I've selected a couple of bits um, really to show where he goes with it and where it can take me today. It's also prefaced by a quotation from Arthur Scargill, who was very popular then still with supporters of the miners' strike. And he had said in 1982, my father still reads the dictionary every day. He says, your life depends on your power to master words. So um, now Harrison leads in with three or four stanzas quatrains, four-line stanzas, all, all very iambic. And he finds someone in this graveyard called Wordsworth and somebody called Byron. So at first you think you're in Westminster or something. And then you realise that these are people who are tanners or bakers or makers of beer. His father was a baker. And he comes to his father's grave. And he says, This graveyard on the brink of Beeston Hills, the place I may well rest if there's a spot under the rose roots and the daffodils by which Dad dignified the family plot. If buried ashes saw, then I'd survey the places I learned Latin and learned Greek and left. The ground where Leeds United play, but disappoint their fans week after week. Which makes them lose their sense of self-esteem and taking a shortcut home through these graves here. They reassert the glory of their team by spraying words on tombstones, pissed on beer. And then there are several more um, ideas covered as he looks at around at the Latin for the Lord Mayor and the Somme and messages and so on. And he comes to the expletives on the graves, which I won't read out, the C and the B and the S and the F. And then there is a stanza where he pins that to him and he says, more expansively here, there's Leeds versus the opponent of last week, this week or next and a repertoire of blunt four-letter curses on the team or race that makes the sprayer vexed. And that really is what the rest of the poem is about. He's already mentioned Latin, he's mentioned Greek, he's mentioned the setting, he's mentioned his parents, and he mentions a skinhead who's spraying. And then just three more verses and I'll go forward 30-odd verses or stanzas. He says, it's from Leeds versus Derby, black versus white, and as I've known to me cost, man versus wife, communist versus fascist, left versus right, class versus class, as bitter as before, the ending violence of us and them, personified in 1984 by Cole Board McGregor and the NUM. Hindu, Sikh, soul, body, heart versus mind, east, west, male, female, and the ground these fixtures are fought on. Man's resigned to hope from his future what his past never found.
So he then goes on through the next three dozen verses, exploring all of that class, race, religion. He doesn't shy away from using all the expletives and all the unpleasantness of language that's in here. He reflects on his father and his mum who wouldn't like him using the language he's using and would play Hamlet with him. And there's a sustained dialogue with a supposed skin who's spraying and talking and he's talking back and saying it was people like you I wanted to give voice to and the skin's saying F off. And then this one word, united, keeps coming in because it's been sprayed on his parents' grave. So he kind of metaphysically thinks, maybe, you know, maybe they are united. Maybe his dad was right. And here we are, in anyway, on top of a coal mine. Underneath this graveyard, there's a coal mine. If I go in it, I'd be more worried about sinking into the black depths than anything else because I don't believe in an afterlife. And he covers racism in these and what's happened to the local shops and his dad not being able to walk to get what he wanted and not having a chat. And the only bit of it that jars for me in all the 4,000 words is he rhymes shop with co-op. And I think, ah, we didn't call it co-op in these, we called it co-op. It wouldn't fit in Seacroft years ago for the co-op divvy. And down in Dewsbury Road, you went for the Corp Divvy. So his, his classical training has slightly misled him, may I dare to say, there, which amused me as well. But the kids are playing football. They're kicking the trees. Things are falling and they're saying, here comes the bride. And eventually, giving up on this graveyard and everything that's happening, he says, he's going home, home, home to my woman as the red sky darkens from a flesh blood to a dried. Home, home to my woman, home to bed, where opposites seem sometimes unified. And he gets on the bus and goes back to the station to go to Newcastle. And on his way, he says, a pensioner in turban taps his stick along the pavement past the corner shop that sells samosas now, not beer on tick, to the Kashmir Muslim club that was the co-op corp. Okay, so at the end of the poem, he's reconciled. He's back with his home home and his woman, and he says never to return till sexton or survivor has to cram the bits of clinker scooped out of my urn down through the rose roots to my dad and mum. So I think, you know, it's a poem you could spend days talking about, of course, and he obviously likes Wordsworth. It's a very long narrative poem. It's got loads of lists in it, and it's got common man language in it and everything else. Um, And I think... um, Really, it still shows where his theme goes from that them and us, through his classical education at Oxford, through all his high-profile successes, to standing in a graveyard and realising this is where I started, you know, T.S. Eliot style, home's where you start from, and then going back in himself to try and find meaning in life and share that with people. And I kind of 
glory in that, you know. And uh, when I've looked at people's interpretations, some people think he's actually having a fight with a skinhead in the graveyard, and some people object to the mines, and it's, it's just endless. So now what I don't want to do today is to leave any negative ideas about Leeds or Leeds United or Tony Harrison. And the relationship between issues Harrison raises about education, employment, urban lives, class, politics, racism, anti-Semitism, sexism, religion and an afterlife are all part of asking what that graveyard in Leeds signified to a man returning home, a man who lives by and in books. And I just wanted to put that out there, that this is how the relationship with books expands us and anyone who's willing to listen to you as I was willing to listen to him. So I'm moving forwards now to a Leeds writer I met when, with the Seacroft Lit Society, I was involved in a book about Seacroft 1914 with Leeds University. I hadn't been in Leeds for decades, but we were involved in events at the Tetley and the City Museum. The Tetley directly links me to Leeds' Irish ancestry. Um, the City Museum used to be a theatre called the Civic Theatre where my mother enrolled my shy 12-year-old self in drama classes. And in truth, part of my great Shakespeare obsession uh, comes from being crowd scenes as a Capulet dancer of the Pavan and the Galliard and shouter of Partisan! But in that much more recent event at the now City Museum... I met and bought a book from Anthony Clavan. It's a book called The Promised Land, a Northern Love Story. And the jacket promises, this is a book about football. It's about unconditional love for a club, even when it doesn't always seem to love you back. But it's also a book about much more than that. And that's why I'm very interested. It's about much more than that, as well as the football. Anthony Clavan loves Leeds, certainly the football club, but also the city and the tribes that make it. Now he's in exile in the south. His frequent pilgrimages to the stadium speak for themselves, but he no less loves the rarely glimpsed black strip back streets of his youth and even has a feel for the long-gone slums where his ancestors once settled. Leeds is his promised land, idealised and unreachable, yet still it defines him and ends the Daily Telegraph, sports writing at its very best. So I'm not going to stereotype Leeds fans in my talk about home and books and Leeds people, but between Harrison and Clavan, I want to make a point about the complex home the city of Leeds is, and I want to get past any abusive language as the end of anybody's story. Books tell many stories about one city and how many people relate to it and about how some things are shared by very different people. Books move us beyond instant reaction to new ideas. Clavan writes honestly that in times of economic crisis, Leeds slurs against the Irish Jews and Pakistanis who've succeeded each other. But in other times, Leeds tries to break boundaries, he says, extends the parameters of the possible, turns the world upside down, and, he says, this is the Leeds I love, which is why as the railway curves around the football stadium, my heart always lifts. I feel that I'm home, back where I started on the threshold of possibility. His ancestor arrived on a handcart driven by an Irishman who knew enough Yiddish when he got him to what he calls the ghetto to say, Mir Zenon Do, we are here, forgive my pronunciation. One of his elders 
explained how Leeds was built on stranger sweat and rural Yorkshire sweat to build a community of communities and how those three words felt when you arrived somewhere safe. And he sees how Leeds United helped to build that identity in an alien place. There's only one team in Leeds, notes Clavan, so you can then be a proud, independent Luina and a Leeds United man. And this isn't past. As recently as 2021, The Athletic, a magazine, discussed the ambiguities for Leeds fans heading into Tottenham, which is traditionally regarded as the Jewish club. And Clavan's writing is there cited as a largely untold tale of a community, those who became fanatical about their local team, they contributed to Leeds United's finest eras, and they continue to turn out en masse for Leeds. And they also remind that by the 1960s and the Revy era, Leeds' Jewish community was doing more than filling the terraces at Elland Road. In response to financial strife at the end of the 1950s, Leeds United had appealed for investment and the club's board of directors, led by Chairman Harry Reynolds, took on three Jewish directors, including Manny Cossens, who was very well known in Leeds and later was appointed as the chairman. An interest-free loan was given to Leeds and Arnold Zipf, a prominent Jewish businessman in the city, created the 100 Club, where individuals paid 100 for lifelong season tickets. These men, it says, and quotes Clavan, had a strong affinity for Yorkshire, a strong affinity for Leeds. They were local Yiddish businessmen who helped make the football team great. And this spreads right across. I mean, most of the white-collar workers in Seacroft, when I was a girl listening to Marvin Gaye, worked for the Jewish tailoring firms in the offices. Um and were part of that. And Clavan and others connect Leeds United to philanthropy in the city as an effect of feeling part. If you're feeling you're belonging, you want to give back. And that strikes a note too, because when we were invited from Seacroft Literature Society to Leeds University Lifelong Learning Centre, the building we visited was the Ziff Centre. And one member of our group, all of whom said, by the way, I've lived in Leeds all my life and I've never been across the threshold of this place before. This is fantastic. People were thrilled. But one of our group, a Leeds fan, um, gained admission to Leeds University and was overwhelmed by being able to belong. He hadn't wanted to leave school and go to work. His teacher had visited home and said the lad can make it, but he'd had to go and earn a wage. And as he put it, he never thought he'd darken the doors of a university in his own hometown um, because he was from the wrong side of Leeds. So when he enrolled as an undergraduate, he wrote of striding up the steps of Parkinson Building, feeling like Rocky winning the lottery. He never felt better in his life. Um, and sadly, he died soon after that of cancer, but at least he had that wonderful experience of striding in as Rocky to Leeds University. And all of that's linked to Seacroft and what we were doing here and what the Ziff Foundation had done for the university. So all these strands come together as books providing access to a feeling of being at home in your mind and your feelings, as well as in a physical place. And Clavan's book shows the influences of his reading, he quotes Dickens at the beginning, etc., as he unites football with insights about belonging and then providing education. Books influence us, they change us, 
then they become the means of explaining the journey and the changes to read those who read the next generation of books. And some bookish Leeds people travel to new physical homes, others settle in Leeds and bring their books with them. I asked my lockdown bubble buddy, um, home county settler in Leeds, Hertie Mispers, with a deep interest in books and education about some of this. And she said what she lays down to feel at home um, really is about having two homes. She has a home in Leeds, she has a home in Israel. She feels longing in both um, for the other. Um, and she also has, in, as in every Jewish home, and the, the thing you give to your child when they buy their own home or get their own home, a mezuzah, a prayer inside the door to establish that is your home. And so um, that that tradition can also be found in, I mean, you know, Catholics have the Sacred Heart and Sikhs have different things, and there are traditions the whole way through of people placing religious icons she has never expressed a longing for return to Surrey or London, and I recently shared our Poet Laureate's 2014 letter to London with her, which she enjoyed and we laughed together. This is Simon Armitage, Professor of Poetry at Leeds, who only recently perched awkwardly on a London BBC sofa to introduce his 100 years of BBC poem, asserting a home and why his books are still written here in Yorkshire, and he doesn't want to be anywhere else, even if he is the Queen's poet or now the King's. I can't move in with you, London. I've applied for a restraining order, requiring that you remain 200 miles from Huddersfield at all times, and at least one hour 58 minutes from Wakefield Westgate Station. Sorry, I've had to take this draconian measure, you know how proud I am to call you a friend, London, and I admit to being a little starstruck on occasion by your power and glamour, a little turned on even by your swank. I'm not digging for gold, filing for custody of our nation's greatest institutions. I don't want the Bank of England relocating to Rotherham or the Albert Hall relocating to a brownfield site off the M62. What I need is my space. I need my moors and valleys, my rivers and escarpments, my rarefied air and my moral high ground. I need my own place. We've been seeing a lot of each other recently in London, twice a week sometimes, and I couldn't bear to lose our walks by the river, our visits to galleries and theatres, our nights on the town. But I can't move in with you, London. I can't live in the spinning roulette wheel of your peoples and postcards, and I'm asking you to respect the distance I need. I for you not to come here looking for me. Please don't send the long arm of your proposed high-speed railway stretching this way. They'd only pull me in, make me part of your circle, drain the life out of me, when what I like about us is our difference. London, if you love and respect me as you say you do, and want to shower me with gifts, and see me thrive, and be happy... They just send the money in the post, but keep your distance, London. You stay south and I'll stay north. Not coupled, but attracted across 200 miles of magnetic field. Yours affectionately, Simon Armitage. And there is there are several links to him reading at Pinterest in a YouTube one, which I'll forward to Peter, and he can put them 
up. And what's interesting in the thread coming through is all of these people go back to the classics. Um, Harrison told Melvin Bragg that he'd only really felt the Wakefield mystery plays and the York mystery plays and medieval work um, actually working when he did it with actors with northern accents because that's what it should sound like. And Armitage asserts and relishes the northern narrative in Sagarin and the Green Knight which I spent some time working on last year, and it's funny and it's brilliant, and you you highly recommend it to anyone. And there he is saying this is how it should sound, and and it was also highly acclaimed, of course. So they both link their home base to their language, and their whole lives are about books and being educated. Harrison at Oxford, um, Armitage not, proudly, and, and a probation officer and so on. But wherever they travel, those instincts hold. Both are also read widely wherever others take their books. And there's another diaspora dimension emerging here because there's a constant crossover of people going backwards and across the world and taking those books with them. Um, another bit of luck I've had in my life was reading for the Best First Novel Award, and I've worked in Pakistan and Karachi, so I've been very interested in another writer from near Armitage, near Huddersfield, a place called Lockwood, would you believe, as in the narrator of Wuthering Heights. Um, and for a long time, he also moved to London, but he came back. Um, and that is Nadim Aslam. He's explained Maps for Lost Lover, uh, an older book of his, as a book about the classic theme of Islamic literature, The Quest for the Beloved. And Nadim says things like, this, these are bits from Guardians I have the references for and so forth. There's no message for others. Writing is my way of understanding my life. If my writing is of any value to anyone else, it's simply because I am an ordinary man. And that humility is countered by reviews like Camilla Shamshi, who said, you know, to read Aslam's physical descriptions is to be reminded of the ability of language to make us re-see the world through analogy and metaphor. So a woman's go bracelet is composed of a series of semicolons. Dead tulips lean out of a bin like the necks of drunk swans. A falling icicle is a radiant dagger. And, of course, all the images are linked to Urdu poetry as well, that idea of the radiant dagger. And she points to his evocation of jazz as actually being comprehensive in its explanation of what he does too. Now, it was recently in 2017 when uh, Aslam's back in Lockwood, walking the moors and picking apples, and is talking about a book called The Golden Legend. He's asked questions about home and books. And they say, where did the idea for the golden legend come from? And he says, simmering away in the background for the past five years has been this constant conversation about refugees and the hatred of strangers. It's now become part of public life. I kept hearing, why are these people coming? What are they fearing? And I wanted to say, this is why nobody leaves their house, their country lightly. You don't wake up one day and think, I'll just get on this boat and make a crossing. So, you know, you can be in Seacroft and think, all oh, that's got nothing to do with you. But then, of course, I remember my dad arrived on a platform ticket. You know, if, if you know, we're all part of this diaspora 
And he's asked, does Yorkshire feel a long way from the events in your book? And he says, I'm surrounded by farmlands and orchards which I work in. And these are the same fields my father walked around in the 1950s when he fled to Yorkshire. Actually, going for a walk in Yorkshire for me is like walking in Pakistan. It feels far away from the centre and makes me very aware of what passes for beauty in the margins. And then they say, there's a line where one of your characters muses on the survival of the human race and all of my writers are coming together now. I'm I'm moving towards um, uh, an ending surely and steadily here um, where he says, that's what the book's about. Earlier this year, I saw a man wearing a T-shirt that said, welcome to Britain, now fit in or F off. That awful idea of only one God, one religion, one nation, one language that I explore in this book, well, it goes against everything I hold dear. And so this respect you have if you're a a book person where you don't just say, that's me, that's who I am, that's what I exist for, you start reading more and exploring more and hearing more and listening more and learning more and you never know anything because you're always listening to the voices in the books and that becomes your home, open inquiry and having an open life because you're learning wherever you are. If you've got some books, you're not stuck in four walls or any situation, you're learning and this is what these people make us realise. So we're circling this theme and we're returning Elliot Stein, of course, to a shared beginning Of course, when we talk about walking on the moors with Armitage or Aslam, inevitably a lot of people will think of the Brontes and Emily Brontes. And I'm not going to talk about Emily Bronte today. But, of course, you could. You could talk for a long time about there were two homes in Wuthering Heights and there's a narrator named Lockwood. Uh And in recent times, there's been much, much discussion about where exactly Heathcliff the usurper came from. Was he African? Was he mixed race? Was he an Irish speaker picked up at the docks? And there has been investigations and there have been displays at the British Library in London, I don't know about Boston Spa, of the crystal world of Gondor. This world the little girls, the Bronte girls wrote about where they, through all their reading of um, all the stuff that came into their house, books, papers, magazines, the Leeds Mercury, their new Leeds, the Yorkshire Dialect Society in the stack at Leeds University has old references to what they what they did and what they had. Um, and that's another whole paper about women and leads and thriving societies. It's not for today because what I want to do with her today is to say, bring all of that to a bridge to another writer who's really my last writer today. And that is to Carol Phillips. Um, Carol Phillips is a man who was born in St. Kitts as a baby. He moved to Leeds. He's kind of my contemporaries. So when I was thinking about and listening to um, Marvin Gaye, he probably was hearing that too, I think. He's just a couple of years younger or whatever. Um, but um, there's a bridge here. In fact, as I went roaming from Seacroft, my mother, who was a, a worked at Leeds University Library for decades, sent me Leeds texts. And as soon as I'd gone really, in 1973, she sent me a graduation booklet which included Wale Shainka, uh, who was getting his doctorate at Leeds. And I was desperate for it not to be Leeds where he had written that poem about ringing up for a room and then telling the landlady, I don't want to waste time coming, I'll tell you now I'm black. And you hear the lipsticked mouth pause and then say, 
how black? And then he loses it and says, well, my bottoms is black and my soles of my feet are not black and da-da-da. And I thought, oh, God, I hope that wasn't in Leeds. I hope that was somewhere else. But she later sent me Carol Phillips' book. She'd been to some event, and that opened up another idea. Um, And as recently as 2015, and this is drawing us towards my end now, really, through Carol Phillips, he rewrote some of the ideas from Wuthering Heights and was at the Ilkley Festival talking about it. So he took uh, the struggles of a single mother on a bleak 60s housing estate. He took a traumatised lost child called Heathcliff, who was the offspring of a wealthy merchant of a former slave woman, struggling to support his mother on the Liverpool docks. And he examined implicitly Emily Bronte's own dysfunctional relationship with her father Patrick, as asserted, um, through the juxtaposition of a uh, uh, Monica Johnson's failed marriage an Oxford student who marries a Caribbean graduate student I didn't love the book, that book um, but it spoke to me in many ways and I think this is why because this is what Phillips said in interviews before the 2015 um, Lit Festival at Hilkley he said, at the age of 18 I realised there were different types of England says Phillips, who was brought up on the Winmore estate in Leeds. I started to think about how growing up in Yorkshire formed me. Emily and Charlotte Bronte always struck a chord because they wrote in dialect. I read the books as a teenager, but I didn't really take them in until I went to university. People like John Brain, Stan Barstow, Keith Waterhouse and David Story were really important to me as a student because they were the types of writers teachers wouldn't give you to read. Unlike posh southern contemporary authors like Iris Murdoch or Kingsley Amis, it was my way of reminding myself who I was. So he lived in Winmore. He lived in Beeston, then in Hales, then in Winmore. How wonderful is this for all the connections for me? And then he went to Oxford where he felt a misfit with the regional accent who followed Leeds United. And when he left, he took a big gamble, wrote a play, um, Strange Fruit. It was performed at the Crucible. He used the money to buy a house in St Kitts. And he said, I have to go back now to this place where I was born and left when I was four months old and find out who I am because actually I look like them but I seem to be this person who grew up in Leeds and went through Oxford. So through his homes and his reading and his education and he's still pretty peripatetic, he's based in America, but he comes back more and he says at least these days I can watch live or go online. I don't have to listen to the second half commentary of a Leeds United match over the phone. So this thread of continuity goes on with all these people who love the language and love the team and love the city. And I'm in Britain very frequently, so I still have one arm in the jacket of Leeds after all these years, which is is wonderful. However, the book I really, really want to mention um, of his because it made me cry and there's a wonderful, wonderful uh, review of it by William Ghosh on a link I'll also send to you about post-colonial writers making the world, etc. This is a quote from the book. David, do you remember the girl? She didn't know your history, but she knew your name. You waited for her and bathed in her smile and exchanged your few words. 
And then you watched as she disappeared from view, your rubber boy from Lagos, who, on arriving in Leeds, thought only in the future tense. Imagine a 14-year-old girl with manners from the old world who showed you respect. And after she'd passed you by, it was time for you to leave Button Hill. You walked down Chapeltown Road towards the heart of your city. Now, this book's upsetting because, as Ghost summarises, Carol Phillips' Foreigners, which is what the book's called, is structured in three distinct sections, tells the story of three black men living in England, different points in the country's history. Francis Barber, born into slavery, given as a gift to the writer and scholar and, may we say, dictionary writer Samuel Johnson. Randolph Turpin, Britain's first black world champion boxer, commits suicide aged 37 in 1966. And David Oluwali, a young man born in Nigeria, drowns in the river air in Leeds following years of harassment by the police. Together, these three narratives form a partial portrait of the lives of black people in Britain from the 18th century to the present day. So uh, for my purposes, there's a lot more, and it's well worth reading all that. But the what I'm saying is, you know, making a home in Leeds and contributing to the book life and the history and, and the feeling of what Leeds is and who you are and how books are related to that is very, very wide field indeed. And these are the connections for this talk. But the homes in our post-colonial, all our homes are, because today books have to explore the layers of the homes and what they mean for us. And that's true of Chapel FM, the history of this building, how it came into being, who was here, what the layers of connection are, and the people who were connected to it. So that was Carol Phillips' Foreigners, and I want to go from that to Chapel FM. Um... And from the idea of um, the idea of um, Ghosh saying, what did we know of these bruised black-coated figures in these quotes? How tenuous was our connection? In what way did they, unbeknownst to us, shape the England of today? For Phillips, addressing the past is a way of scrutinising ourselves and our present. And what would they have made of us? What do they tell us about ourselves? And... From that, I then come to saying it's a great thing that Chaffelehem exists here because it gives you the scope to speak like this in Seacroft about books and to break through the stereotypes. So, you know, uh, you know, you could get a good job on Coal Road. You're a clever lass. You know, maybe I want to do nothing wrong with working on the Coal Road, but maybe I don't want to be told that's what I'm going to do you know that feeling back to wherever I lay my hat and getting into that teenage mind and there's a library here dedicated or named after Helen Burke who was a very fine writer who came through Chapel FM and the writing on air meeting has already given me a great gift because I, I spent more than a year of my life in a small village in India and um, I've mentioned it before because I read we read the Brontes and all sorts of things from tin boxes there. But um, when I came to the Writing on Air meeting, I met Jaspreet. And it was like meeting another friend, an old friend from from roaming, you know, whenever in past lives. 
Um, and so we've been in touch and she gifted me a beautiful translation. She's actually a gifted writer and musician, a classical musician, Indian, of the poet Gulzar's poem, as sung in Hindi by Leita Mangeshka. And this is what it says. Eras arrive and ages pass off. What passes not a tiny moments tucked in memory's tints. So, Peter, and writers on air, what's the message from me? It's really simple. I have shared some of memory's tints to suggest that wherever you roam, if you're going from or to, through or around Seacroft, Leeds, Yorkshire, Europe, the world, the universe, you take your book, you add more books, and you feel at home in a community of people writing books and helping you to develop you. So, in short, wherever I lay my book, that's my happy physical and mental home. Love the control. Love the command. Love the space bar and the hard return. Love the words from East Leeds FM. Come back the way you are.